0: Hello, and welcome to the In Publishing Podcast, bringing you weekly insights into the newspaper and magazine publishing sector. I'm Kia Byrne, and this week my guest is Rob Attar, editor of BBC History Magazine and the History Extra Podcast. Before we start, we would like to thank our podcast sponsor, ATEX. ATEX provides software solutions to newspapers, magazines, and online publishers worldwide. Its products include Desk, a content management suite with flexible options for efficient digital and print publishing, and Cross Advertising, a cloud-based solution providing end-to-end multi-channel advertising management. For more information, go to Atex.com. Last month, BBC History magazine celebrated its 20th birthday. Rob Attar has been at the magazine for 16 of those 20 years, rising through the ranks from editorial assistant to editor. He also edits the History Extra podcast. In 2015, he was named Editor of the Year by the British Society of Magazine Editors at their annual awards. The magazine he edits sells almost 90% more copies now than when it launched in 2000, but that circulation growth only tells part of the story. The brand is now so much more than the monthly print edition incorporating a thriving website, events and podcast programme. Rob is joining us from his home in Bristol. Rob, welcome. Hello. Have you always been interested in history and what is it that fascinates you so much about the subject?
1: I mean, yeah, I guess I have. I have been interested in history most of my life, certainly since I was pretty young. And the things that fascinate me are probably the things that fascinate not just our readers, but but everyone really. It's, you know, it's full of great stories you know, that can shine, also shine a light in some ways on the world of today. And it just teaches you a lot about the world. You learn about different cultures, different people, different languages. It's a real way of exploring humanity, essentially.
0: And as I uh, mentioned in my introduction, BBC History magazine celebrated its 20th birthday in May. Can you tell us a little bit about how the magazine came about in the first place?
1: So the magazine uh, came about obviously before my time back in 2000 and at the time there was only i believe one history magazine being published which was History Today and somebody it actually started because somebody working within BBC magazines their their daughter was looking for a history magazine to read and they they couldn't find one they liked so he decided well i i run a magazine business why don't we launch our own so essentially it was quite a random reason to start the magazine but it was also then tapping into quite a a surging popularity of history more generally around then this was just about the same time as Simon Sharma did a big uh, three-part history of Britain series. And there was just a real growth in the popularity of the subject. Also, I think connected to the millennium and people seeing that as a significant milestone and looking back at other ones in the past.
0: And coming on to you personally, you studied history at Bristol University, I believe. Yes, And then you went on to study magazine journalism at the University of Cardiff. Um, before joining BBC History as an editorial assistant in 2004 what advice would you give to a student considering following a similar route today?
1: Um, I mean I wasn't personally looking to follow that specific route and I I guess I I would say I wouldn't advise someone to have such a narrow focus as to aim at a particular print brand to work on because that that would be really difficult to achieve especially especially if your first job I mean I'd just say if you're If you're looking to get into the industry, just do as much as you can. So if you're at university, then, you know, get involved in student journalism. If you're not at university, just try and do some writing off your own bat. You know, there's so many publications out there now that you could pitch at and and just read as well. Read other magazines. If you're looking to apply to work on a brand, just get a real, real understanding for what that brand does. And that magazine does before you try and get a job there.
0: And then how did you work your way up from editorial assistant to editor?
1: I kind of just <laughs> stuck around really, and waited, and waited till other people left. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think I think that often is the way with magazines. You you have kind of quite small teams, and essentially, really to progress, you either have to kind of move move around to different brands, or you just do. What I did. I just loved working on the magazine, and I started off quite young, so I wasn't like in a tremendous hurry to become editor straight away. And essentially, I you know worked on the brand, hopefully. Hopefully, did, you know, did a good job. And then as people moved into different positions, I just kind of climbed up the scale.
0: And how has the magazine changed over the 16 years you've been there?
1: Um, it's funny, I was, I was thinking about this quite a lot um, for the anniversary. And I think the actual ethos of the magazine is very similar. It's certainly not something that I've ever actively sought to change in a big way. Um, you know, we always you know wanted to be a magazine that brought the best of kind of academic historical research to a popular audience and I, I think that's still you know what we aim to do and you know at the same time upholding bbc values so i suppose the biggest changes really have been you know the digital revolution and the fact that we now the magazine now goes out in so many different ways you know we have you know our own digital editions but then we have successful podcast website and and then also things like live events it's, we when i started off we had a you know a website with nothing really on it and that was it and now we have just so many different platforms. And I think that's really been the the big change.
0: Well, I was going to say your circulation has grown from just over 50,000 in the year 2000 to around 93,000 today. And I wondered if you could talk us through some of the key milestones you've just mentioned there, the transition to digital, but what's worked well on that journey and have you made any mistakes along the way?
1: Um, Yeah, you know, we've we've definitely made mistakes. And I, I actually think our kind of, one thing that stood us in good stead has been our willingness to try things. And some of the things just absolutely haven't haven't worked and some things have worked really well. Uh, but we've always been fairly innovative and been prepared to take a risk on something that just, you know, may, maybe wasn't going to work. But, you know, the things that did work really well was definitely our podcast. That was perhaps our first big digital success story. We launched that back in 2007 and, and pretty soon actually it became one of the most popular history podcasts, not just in Britain, but, you know, in the English speaking world. And that's continued to be a huge success and a huge driver of the brand more generally. Um, our website, since we started putting a lot more kind of concerted effort and and introducing uh, you know specific people work it whose key responsibility was for the website back in about 2013. I mean, our website has really taken off, and we've got you know much more traffic now. I think we've got record traffic these days. So you know those two have you know I think been a big success stories, and, and actually our digital editions have done pretty well. We We went quite early with a kind of Kindle e-reader edition before most other brands were doing. And that actually became our most popular digital edition pretty early on. and Sorry. sorry Oh, yeah, I was going to say, if you want some things, we we did wrong.
0: (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) Always always interesting to, to learn.
1: I don't think we've done anything catastrophically wrong because, you know, once something wasn't working, we just we wouldn't carry on doing it for years and years. We, we tried a couple of kind of experiments with apps that just didn't quite take off in the way we hoped they would. Um, I think around the time that, you know, everyone, you know, when everyone had smartphones and apps were the big thing, we tried doing some apps that were beyond just things like digital editions. And at first, they, we just didn't see the appetite for them that we were seeing for our straight website and our podcast. But I mean, right. as I say, we kind of didn't push them for too long.
0: And now at 20, um, can you talk us through what your current publishing strategy is? I know we're in unusual times, but how do those pillars of your brand work together? The, the magazine, the website, the podcast?
1: Yeah, so obviously a lot of things are a little bit up in the air at the moment due to, you know, this kind of unexpected pandemic. So things are being, you know, as with every single brand in, in, in the country, things are kind of moving and strategies are changing a little bit. So. It's in a site state of, of flux, but um, generally, I'd say a, a big thing is actually trying to integrate our different platforms more, you know, bring them together more because, you know, our website, our podcast, our print magazine, uh, you know, are all, you know, pretty successful, but maybe we still haven't integrated them as well as we could. So it's, it's partly a case of just getting people who work across the brand to work, you know, in an even more multi-platform way to start using content to kind of inspire content on the other platforms. And, and definitely at the moment, it's it's really to grow digital because that that is an area that's seen a lot of growth, even and particularly during the current pandemic situation.
0: And you've got a wonderful website with a, a lot of free um, articles on it. I wondered how you decide what content to give away for free without plagiarizing your paid for content.
1: So our yeah our strategy for our website content and uh, the kind of paywall content again that that is kind of something that's moving at the moment. So it's it's changing all the time and again it's something that we're kind of doing a lot of research on to work out the best approach um and exactly what kind of paywall we go for I mean at the moment in the UK it was certainly we what we launched with was uh, magazine content print magazine content would largely be paywalled whereas our kind of web only content wouldn't be but that's yeah. not necessarily to say that that's going to carry on and I mean it, it is a challenge this is a question that comes up a lot is whether by you know by strengthening the website by putting the print content on for free, whether that is detrimental to print sales. And it's hard to know. And we just, you know, just do it by case by case basis and have to work out, you know, is the the advantage of putting a certain piece on the website going to outweigh potential, you know, losses of sales?
0: And for a publisher considering a similar strategy, what are the key do's and don'ts to success?
1: So what do you mean by a similar strategy?
0: Well, I suppose having this integrated website Podcast,
1: magazine, yeah, and um, I suppose, yeah, definitely uh, working sort of fairly holistically, which again is something that I think we we still aren't as good at as we could be, and probably no brand is, but definitely having people working across all the platforms and not having them too siloed, so you can share knowledge and share, you know, potentially content um, and expertise across the different platforms. Again, I also think just seeing what works and, and not you know, carrying on with something for years and years if it doesn't work. I mean, our podcast just had it become a big success. But if our podcast was just struggling around and not and not doing anything, then it's, it wouldn't necessarily be worth spending, you know, all the time we do spend on doing it. So I think it's worth investigating all the, the different platforms out there and actually trying to work out what works rather than just doing something relentlessly just because it's, it's there and other people are doing it.
0: And as you say, podcasts are a very important part of what you do. How do you measure the success of those podcasts?
1: I mean, nowadays, we have pretty good statistics for our podcasts through uh, ACAST, who's our publishing platform. In the past, that was a, a lot harder to measure. So we're pretty good at measuring actual numbers of, of listeners, which is a pretty good way of measuring. Certainly the popularity of the podcast, it doesn't necessarily measure the value of it, but it tells us a lot about numbers. Uh, we, you know, We get revenue from advertising, so that's another way of measuring it. But I, th- I think a lot of it is a bit harder to gauge. But a lot of the value of the podcast is in what it brings to our, our other platforms. And, and that is, is harder to measure. But we know anecdotally that a lot of people have, through the podcast, then come to the print magazine. People come to our live events from all over the world because of the podcast. And people come to our website. Those things are harder to gauge, but we definitely know that effect is there.
0: And do you have any secrets to podcasting success?
1: Um. I think this isn't necessarily a secret, but really one of the big things that helped us was we started early. And I mean, nowadays podcasts, particularly in the last year or two, have just exploded. And I think it is harder to get traction with a new podcast unless you're, you've are you got a really big brand behind you or like some kind of celebrity presenter. So, I mean, and this isn't really a secret I can offer anyone else, but certainly getting in early. And, and then I think looking looking at the kind of supply and demand in in the area you're in. I mean, if you're doing a podcast in an area that's massively oversaturated already, you are going to struggle to get traction. Whereas, if you find somewhere that there is a lot of interest, but maybe isn't being as well served, that that might be the place to go. I think it's also useful to have some ways to to market your podcast early on, because, like I said, there is so many podcasts out there. If you don't, if you are a podcast only play, it is going to be difficult to, to get much attention if you don't also have, say, social media or some other media kind of platforms that you can use to promote it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um now I wanted to ask a bit more about your audience. Presumably it's people from all walks of life who like history, but who how do you see them and how do you find the right tone in which to address them?
1: Um, you're you're completely right. Our audience is probably from magazine brand one of the broadest out there in you know it's very hard to pinpoint a particular age. You know, we are definitely read by um you know men and women, we've different um you know all kinds of different demographics and and we have quite a lot of readers outside the u k as well so it's we can't always assume our reader is a British person, so I think really the only thing that does absolutely unite our readers is a passion for history and the fact that I think for them it's really an interest and enthusiasm rather than necessarily an academic thing or or not always a professional thing either. So I think you know in our head we just have to try and bear in mind the kind of level we're pitching the magazine at and the kind of historical knowledge and tone but it it, you know it is difficult because we do have quite a a broad readership one thing that that we always have to bear in mind is the fact that we're a bbc publication so we also we try and follow the kind of the rough kind of bbc tone and the way that sort of bbc programming would kind of approach its audience and yeah sorry
0: well, I was going to ask how you find your writers. Are they all academics? Um, how does that work? And do you approach them or do they come to you with ideas?
1: So they're not all academics. I'd, quite a lot of them are. I'd say it's a mixture really of, of academics, sort of straight academics. Then people I would describe as kind of popular slash literary historians who are who often, you know, are sort of researched just as thoroughly as academics do, but they're kind of their they work as professional writers really and professional broadcasters. And then there's also people who I'd say are historically literate journalists who often come up with some good stories as well. So it's kind of a mixture of those three. But probably academics is is the biggest proportion. And then, yeah, it's a mixture. Some of them some of them come to us. Sometimes we go to them. It, you know, we, we get sent a lot of pitches, but also often if there's a, a subject we want to cover, we'll actively go and find people to write it for us.
0: Well, I was going to come on to ask, are there trends in the areas of history that people are interested in? And if so, do you follow those or do you stick with your own agenda?
1: Yeah, we absolutely do follow trends. But there's, I guess, there's there's two different aspects of this, because there's the trends in academic history, which are very different often from the trends in popular history. And I suppose we probably go a bit nearer the trends in popular history, because um, academic history often, you know, it's quite specialised. And some of the things that are really big in the academic history world just wouldn't translate as well into popular history so we're probably more attuned to what's going on say you know history that you know relates to current affairs history related to anniversaries big kind of tv film big history books but you know we are also looking at academic history where there are areas of research that we think will translate to a popular audience
0: and sorry to come on to the inevitable but we, we touched on this earlier what impact has covid had on your brand and the way that you work?
1: I mean, huge, huge. Like, like it has for every, for every magazine I imagine in in the country. So, for the way, we work. We're like most people. We're all working from home, and we have been for a few months. That I think we're lucky in the sense that that hasn't been too difficult for us to do. And and you know, the kind of work we do actually can be done from home. It, it's not as good as being in the office and you know working as a team in that way. But but that hasn't been. It's been big shift, but it hasn't been a total disaster. And for the brand, it's been there have been sort of ups and downs, really. The the obvious negatives are clearly not as many people going to shop. So newsstand sales clearly are affected. And the advertising market is certainly print advertising is struggling a bit at the moment. But on the plus side, because people are at home, we've seen a lot more subscriptions, you know, print subscriptions, but also a huge uptake in our digital platforms, such as well, podcast and website really have both seen record numbers in the last couple of months.
0: Can you put any figures on those?
1: Yeah, so uh, our our last kind of the last complete month we've had uh, on the website, we were up, I think, yeah, about twenty percent on the previous month, which is it's quite a dramatic change for you know a right. website that that yeah. you know has been going for sort of seven eight years, and you know our page views are over four million a month now, which is wow. for the first time, which you know it's we've we were having pretty good numbers before, but I think there's definitely an aspect of more people being at home, and also you know, and also us putting more effort into it, emphasis into it, and our podcast now—we for the first time recently we've topped a hundred thousand listens a day, quite a few times, and great, we're great. potentially looking at three million a month pretty soon. Which again, we weren't—we were kind of between one and two million before, so it's definitely been a sort of big uptick in podcasts too.
0: And I was going to ask, have you found any new ways of doing things during this period, or? launched any new products which are particularly relevant to um, lockdown?
1: Yeah, so I'd say actually a lot of the new things have, I mean, we're clearly we're, everything we're doing has been different because it's been done remotely. And um, podcasts, we we have actually changed the way we do podcasts because a lot of those were originally done in person or done via ISDN. No, none of these we, we can do at the moment. So we found some pretty good ways to record podcasts using actually just sending round people little Personal portable recording devices and we've got couriers going around the country with these and that's really helping us to to record the podcast still in high quality audio and actually it might be a way we do it in future because it in some ways is better than how we previously recorded and actually again on the podcast we have upped the frequency and introduced some new formats so we've got one we're doing now on Sundays where we essentially ask historian to cover all the big questions on a particular historical topic And, and that's been really really popular so i think we are looking at doing other sort of new podcast strands as well in the next few months
0: great um events are clearly an important part of of the bbc history brand and presumably you've had to cancel or postpone live events have you tried to run any virtually
1: so yeah so we certainly like that we have some events have been cancelled or postponed and some are still kind of being decided but further down the line we did actually do we had a medieval life and death event that was due to take place in early mid march and, and that got cancelled fairly last minute so we actually did put those talks out on on video uh, and actually we're putting them out on the podcast too but they were on on video on historyextra.com and that's actually been they've been really well received and a lot of people have given us really positive feedback about that so it, it's definitely something we'll look at for the future it, it, you know it's complicated because people aren't really made, managing to charge for events at the moment so the whole finances of them is quite different but It's definitely something we're thinking about continuing.
0: And it might be difficult to say uh, from the current perspective, but what do you see as being the long-term impact on your events?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely can't give you a definitive answer on that because this is something that's still being decided. It it depends, I guess, what happens with with COVID-19. I mean, if COVID-19 is completely gone, if there's, say, a vaccine or something, then I, I personally don't see any reason why we can't just restart them as we have done. If it, but if it, it does continue, then I, I don't know, really. I mean, it, it's really tricky. I, I guess we're in the same boat everyone has who's doing events. We just we just don't know if and when we'll be able to carry on with them.
0: And coming to your role as editor, how has it evolved over the years and what do you see as being essential to the modern editor?
1: I, th- I think the, the thing I was saying probably before, quite a lot of the questions, that the big, big change has been digital. Even since I started as editor in, in 2012, we were doing the podcast, but nothing like the frequency we are now. And again, the website hadn't really taken off. So in those days, my role was definitely predominantly print, probably 90%. And, and again, our events hadn't really got going yet. Whereas now, it's just, yeah, it's just much more about working across different platforms and ensuring what I'm doing in print is also, you know, we're also communicating with what people on our website are doing. I'm also thinking about what we're doing on the podcast and what we're doing with events. So it's, I guess it's just thinking more holistically. Although, you know, a lot of it is still the same. We st- I still have to put out a magazine, a print magazine each month that is of high quality and that I think will work for our readers. So, you know, those things haven't changed, but it's, it's just definitely more about working multi-platform.
0: And are there some areas of the job that you enjoy more than others?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, I still love getting involved in the subject matter. I love kind of interviewing people. I love commissioning people, planning issues of the magazine. Those, those kind of things, the kind of creative aspects of it I, I think the bits i still I still enjoy doing the most, but there isn't really anything I particularly hugely dislike about doing the job it, it's a, you know it's a pretty good job to do, so there's not any real terrible parts
0: and what does the future hold for BBC history magazine? Do you have any new developments in the pipeline, and what will BBC History Mag look like in twenty thirty or twenty forty
1: so again a lot a lot of the future is is changing now because because of what's happening at the moment and I I think it's a bit it's a bit risky to put any sort of strong predictions down just because we just don't know how this is going to all shake out and how fast it's going to it's going to push the transition to digital but but I think the big thing is going to be just increasing digital and much more let's say more collaboration between print and digital much more going on you know on our, the digital version of the magazine and again with our podcast I think those are going to be the big big kind of areas of growth but I do also think there is a place for a print magazine. I'm definitely not someone who thinks print magazines are just going to disappear. Our subscriptions, you know, are currently going up at the moment. And and I, you know, I think the print magazine does give you something different from web content. Both have their place. But, you know, I would hope that the print magazine is still going strong in 2030, 2040. And I, I don't really see any reason why it wouldn't be.
0: And I was going to ask about how you see the magazine sector uh, as a whole developing. Would would it be a similar picture of um you know print still being important but multi-platform and a holistic approach um also coming into play
1: yeah that that's what I th- yeah that's certainly what i would expect would happen although i mean it is challenging because it not many brands yet have managed to bring in the kind of revenues from digital that they have done from print and I, th- I think with certainly with what's happening at the moment a lot of brands will you know i'm sure will be struggling so it is a really difficult time and i think it's still a big question of how to how to make more revenue from from digital but I, I expect that's what all brands are going to be trying to do and that's really yeah, what everyone's going to be pushing for in the next few years.
0: And your birthday month uh, was also uh, another big anniversary the 75th anniversary of VE Day how did you mark that and do you think there are any lessons that can be learned from VE Day and what went before for our current crisis?
1: Yeah so a lot a lot a lot of anniversaries going on perhaps quite a muted one on this occasion we we yeah we certainly did mark the ve day anniversary we did a special supplement in our may uh 2020 issue all about ve day and we we had quite a lot of content on our website we did a podcast as well so we went pretty big on this story as i think it is probably the last of the big uh sort of european world war ii an- 75th anniversaries well obviously it was um I think it's a bit tricky making comparisons, and I, I think a kind of historian would always say that the past is a lot more complicated than people might think, and making straight comparisons, once you start really looking into what happened then you see that the picture's often less clear-cut than, than it might appear. I suppose one thing you do see from World War Two and what happened afterwards is the resilience of people, really. I mean, if you look at how cities were bombed, you look at the devastation on so many countries, and then... You know, Europe within a few decades did rebuild itself. And, you know, a country like Japan as well completely transformed itself. So I think people are able to withstand quite a lot and come back from it, but not everybody can. And and you know, and these things are generally, as I said, always really complicated. And finally, what
0: is or if you do you have a favourite period of history, and if so, why?
1: Well, since I was at school, really, I've always. I suppose been most interested in like twentieth century Russian history that was the thing i if I could have carried on studying history that I would have done sort of further on. I think it's just just because what you have in nineteen seventeen is a revolution where really a handful of people take power in the world's biggest country and then not only transform that but transform you know the entire history of the last hundred years really with you know things like World War two the cold War that all really comes from nineteen seventeen and i I think I've always been interested in things that have kind of global impacts. And I think the Russian revolution is one of those things that is just so transformative that it it can't help to know a lot about it, really.
0: Brilliant. Thanks very much, Rob. Thanks a lot. I would like to thank Atex again for sponsoring this podcast. If you would like to discuss how Atex can help you with either your content or advertising management, then check out their website at atex.com or contact Alberto Mari, their head of business development on 07500 433 157 or by email at amari at 8x.com. Thank you to Rob for being our guest this week. You can find out more about BBC History magazine at historyextra.com and you can sign up to the History Extra podcast on all major podcasting platforms. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email address is editorial at inpublishing.co.uk. I look forward to you joining me next week on the In Publishing podcast. Thank you for listening.